Every week at RUF, part of what we do is we look at the Bible um, and see what it has to say for our lives, and I do my best to to talk about that. Um, This semester, we are going to be studying um, what are often called the minor prophets of the Old Testament. There are these 12 prophets. They're called minor just because they're shorter than some of the other ones. Um, and they're probably, if you are a Bible-owning person, they're that little, they're, they're like a little strip of the Bible that you just have never really opened to. And so I thought, like, what would be more twompy than to, uh, than to preach a sermon on Obadiah, right? Um, so that's what I'm going to be doing in a few weeks. But tonight we are looking at the prophet Hosea. Uh, to give you a little context, Hosea is ministering. He's a prophet of God. He's ministering in a time when God's people, Israel, are worshiping other gods, um, specifically one called Baal, or sometimes Baals in the plural, as we'll see in the text. And God comes to Hosea, and he tells him to do this thing that's very strange and very counterintuitive to you and me. But he basically tells him, um, I want you to enact a parable I want you to be a living parable, a living story, a living metaphor, a living illustration of what it's like for me as your God to be connected to you as my people. Got it? So what Hosea is about to do, what God's about to tell him to do, is a living illustration of what it's like for God to be with his people Israel. And to apply it, fast forward, it would be, if you consider yourself a Christian, it would be him and you. Okay, here we are, Hosea. Chapter 1, we'll start at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's more times than I've said whoredom in years. (laughs) Three times in a verse. Um, Verse 3. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And she's going to conceive, she's going to bear him a son named Jezreel, and then two more kids. Um, Jezreel, by the way, is named after a field that the, the king of Israel, Ahab, uh, stole from a man by murdering him. So it's like naming your, like, I have a son named Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Jezreel would be like, field of blood. This is my son, Field of Blood. And then they have two more kids. They have a daughter, and they name her No Mercy. And then they have another son, and they name him Not My People, under the command of God. <laughs> Not Son of My Right Hand. It's like, like, what is happening? So they have these three kids. And fast forward to chapter 2. God continues, and he's extrapolating on the metaphor here. Verse 2, starting at verse 4. He says, Upon her children also I will have no mercy, like the child's name, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She she who conceived them has acted shamefully. I think it would be a great idea for us to pray. Let's do that. (laughs) That is what in the world. We need some help. Let's pray. Lord God. Please be with us now. Please help me to speak clearly and truthfully from your word. Um, For those of us who are coming here for the first time, coming from a place of skepticism, curiosity, what what in the world is it that the Bible says and what do these people believe? Or just coming anxious and ready to to, to hear from you, full of faith and, and excited to hear a word from the Lord. Wherever we're coming from, all over the spectrum, Lord, we pray that no matter what, you would be with us tonight. That you would show your love to us and that you would speak. Let me ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, rhetorical question. What's the best seat at a wedding? The best seat at a wedding 
is an aisle seat. We don't have an aisle in here. But imagine. It's right here. Why is an aisle seat the best seat? You can answer. Yeah, watch the bride fall on her face, which is what she deserves. No, because you, you get a view of the bride, right? What, what happens in Ameri- typically American weddings, you know, the, the music plays, and everyone stands up, someone gestures, and you turn to the back of the room, and the doors open, and there's the bride, typically with her father, and they walk down, and the procession is this, like, awesome thing. My wife, uh, Dawn, and I, we have a friend named Elizabeth, and she says what she likes to do is she likes to find a seat somewhere where she's got a view of the groom. And while everybody else stands up and looks at the back, she likes to sneak a, a peek at the groom's face. And she says, it's like I've got this little private window into his heart because I get to see his face light up when no one else is looking. And I just love to do that every time I go to a wedding. I look, I look at the groom. Um, and weddings are these cool things, aren't they? Like, there's, like, this perfect day. Like, everybody bleaches their teeth and showers up. Like, nobody shows up on their wedding day with a 5 o'clock shadow. And everybody's dressed to the nines. And money is spent. And champagne is poured. And it's this great, perfect day celebration. And the reason, culturally, that we do that all over the world, by the way. Well, weddings are almost always a celebration. It's this idea that we want to say, this is the way it ought to be. This is what we want. We know life is not always like this, but today is a day of celebration. It's a day of perfection. And throughout the Bible, there's like multiple metaphors to illustrate God's relationship to his people. There's the idea of a father and son, of a shepherd and his sheep, of a king and his people. But one of the most common metaphors throughout the Bible is that of a husband to a wife. God being the husband, the bride being his people. And there's this beautiful picture of what our relationship should be like. But in this story, the woman that Hosea marries, she's a woman named Gomer. It's just not the case. This is not like bleached teeth, pretty wedding day. Like God goes to him and says, go and marry a whoring wife. Marry a wife of whoredom. Like, this is the Bible. What in the world? Um, We see several things in this passage. We're going to read more of the text later. But the first thing that we see, because God is calling his people a whore, is first our unfaithfulness. Does it make you uncomfortable? That God would command his prophet to marry a prostitute? Like what is happening really quickly we're very uncomfortable right now i want to answer a couple of objections first objection you may be having is this oh those are sort of like passe sexual ethics and we've moved past that and like we we're post free love and we get it if that's your view i understand that and i'd love to talk to you about that for now though i would like you to just for the sake of the argument accept the notion that committing adultery is bad that it that it messes things up, that it's not healthy, that it, that it corrupts things. And to understand what this text is trying to say in its original context. Okay? Second objection is this. Why the woman? Why has it always got to be the woman, right? A guy sleeps around and what's he called? Playa. Right? Girl sleeps around. Whore. Slut. It's not fair. Right? Right, that's not fair. It's called a double standard. That is wrong. 
Okay, it's incredibly messed up. Why does he get a trophy and she gets shamed? Totally horrible. Um, the Bible's not doing that, though. You've got to understand that this is a, a living parable, a living metaphor, and all God's people, men and women, are Gomer. Got it? So we're not slut-shaming at RUF. Okay. But, but I want to sit back. I want to step back into that uncomfortability. Okay? When I was in college, I went to a Christian concert. My name is Ben, and I went to a Christian concert. It's <laughs> <laughs> weird. Um, so I went to a Christian concert with some friends. And um, there was like the, like the, Jesus loves us. And then there was another guy who was kind of like the startup musician who like sold CDs out of the back of his truck. And he gets up and it's his turn. And he's like, hey, I want to sing a song. We always sing about how we feel about God. I want to sing a song about how God feels about us. And we're like, yeah, God loves us. We're going to sing a song. How he feels about us. It's going to be great. And then he sings this song. He's like, you drop your dress, you turn your head, you hold him while I sleep alone in our bed. It was the late 90s, and so it sounded like that. <laughs> and um, like it was everybody trying to be Pearl Jam, which was a mistake. Um, and, um, but he's singing, you drop your dress, you turn your head, you hold him while I sleep alone in our bed. And he kept repeating that over and over I don't know what's happening right now. This is how God feels about us. What? And afterwards, I was with some people, and they were like, that was, I was so inappropriate. I mean, I'm going to sing that song. Turning your head, it's not appropriate. And um, a friend of mine, his name is Chris Bechtel, who's like Bible nerd. Um, he goes, he was like, guys, it's the prophet Hosea. He's talking about how God's people turn their backs on him. It's like, that's like straight, it's not inappropriate. It's straight out of the Bible. Um, Christians. Uh, by the way, I had to, I, I lost touch with Chris Bechtel and I Googled him. Like today, I've got to share this. I Googled Chris. Listen to this. <laughs> Chris Bechtel has a PhD in Hebrew Bible at the, from the University of Edinburgh. Today, Christopher has published in Bioethics both the popular press and for academics, particularly in the forthcoming The Ethics of the New Eugenics from Berg Press, and co-authored a volume cataloging and examining advances in the beginning of life through biotechnology. His future work, however, will focus on the theological interpretation of scripture as well as to the political theology of Hebrew prophets. <laughs> so, Bible nerd uh, did okay, apparently. We, we kind of lost touch after college. I was like, what? Really, Bechtel? Come on. Um, anyway, but so, but the, we feel that it's inappropriate because we have this delusion of our own purity. I'm speaking here to, to believers. We downplay the reality of our own unfaithfulness. Um, I want you to imagine that I... Um, I get to officiate weddings a lot. It's a really cool thing that I get to do. And I was officiating a wedding. And we got to that point where the doors open. And the doors open and we all turned and we looked. And the bride was in the lobby. Not with her father. But with her ex-boyfriend. Like all up on him. Like he had come to like rescue her. And they were like embraced in this like get a room. 
That did not really happen. But I wanted to... I wanted to imagine... That didn't happen. But imagine if it did, though. Um, I wanted you... I did that because if he's lying to us about that wedding, what else is he lying to us about? Um, I wanted you to feel that moment because even if you're like, hey, we're past those silly sexual mores, you know at that moment, like, oh, how horrible would it be to be a guest at that wedding? Or how awful would the groom feel as he opened it? But here's the kicker. What Hosea is saying to God's people, you're not a guest at the wedding. And you're not a groom at the front. You're in the lobby. In the embrace. What? Now to be clear. He's talking to God's people. If you're here tonight. And you're a skeptic of Christianity. uh, You went to high school. And uh, Christians judged you. Made fun of you. Like you're accustomed to Christians saying. The whores are over there. Look at the whores. Way over there. And we the good people are over here. Like, I don't know how many, like, Josh Duggar, 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 what's his name? Duggar. Duggar. We need before we go, like, actually, maybe it's, like, our problem, right? Like, um, and Hosea is saying, no, it's you. Like, your heart. As Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye. Um, it's them. It's the world. No, no, no. God says, no, it's you, people. My people. My bride. Start with yourself. And if you're a Christian, if you're like, uh, you know, I believe the Bible. Like, okay, okay, but this seems kind of harsh. I mean, Josh Duggar, Duggar did, did that thing. But like, did the RUF guy just call me a whore? I'm calling my mom. Like, this is, you can't, I'm never coming back here. This is horrible. Call, trigger alert. Um, so, um, it's not like I worship false gods. I mean, Really? But we'll talk more about that later. But I just want to suggest to you to now, now that when the Bible uses this strong language saying, no, 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 when you, what the Bible elsewhere calls sin, when you move towards something other than God, it's, it's like spiritual adultery. That's actually an incredibly liberating concept. It can set you free. Here's why. If, the, if, if Hosea is telling this about all of us, about God's people, his, his ones, It sets you free to admit anything. Anything. Does it get worse than that? Does it get worse than cheating on your groom at the the back of the room? Here's the deal. Vulnerability, when you really expose yourself, met with condemnation, equals shame. But vulnerability, confession of your guilt... Confession of your wrongdoing, met with forgiveness and love, equals freedom and joy. Liberty. But we have to see it for what it is. The point of seeing our unfaithfulness is not so we will feel bad about ourselves or feel ashamed, but that we would see how great God's love is for us. The more we see that, the more we see his love. The more we see our, the depth of our unfaithfulness, the more we see the depth 
of his love for us and the more we can be honest about ourselves. Uh, when I finished college, I, I was interested in going into the ministry and kind of like uh, Jacob and Jenny have done, how they're, they're here to be uh, interns with RUF. I was basically like on staff or like an intern at a church doing youth ministry. And I was interviewing at different places uh, for where I would take this job. And I talked to this man named Keith Coward, who I ended up working for. And when he called me to interview me over the phone, he's like, hey, there's something you need to know. And that's that I'm divorced, which is kind of unusual for pastors. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, there's got to be a story there. And he's like, yeah, so I was married. And my wife cheated on me repeatedly with multiple men. And I tried to reconcile, but we couldn't make it work. So we've been divorced for four or five years now. We have two kids. They live with me. I was like, wow, okay. But both in that conversation and over the next three years that I got to know Keith, he talked for maybe like 90 seconds about what his wife had done to him. And for about 20 minutes about what he had done to her. I was negligent. I didn't listen. I judged her. I forced my views down her throat. I didn't see that she was hurting. I didn't see that she was alone. And he's like confessing all these things. And you would hear, like hearing Keith's version of the story, he was like way worse than this lady who was like sleeping around with multiple dudes on him. In his version of the story, why? Because he believed Hosea was true, not just about his ex-wife, but about himself. And he believed that Jesus loved him enough where he could confess no matter what. And that he could see his stuff as being worse than hers. Okay. The first point was our unfaithfulness. The second is Christ's love for us. Christ's love for us. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Let's go back to verse 5. It says this, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And then God says this, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. It was better for me then than now. I love that passage because God is saying, no, I won't let you have the thing that you think that will fulfill you. She's determining, she's saying, I'm going to go after this other lover because he gives me my drink and my wine and my grain and my raisin cakes or whatever it is that we don't want, but she did. Um, And... Let me ask you this. What is the thing that you think will, that you can go after that will make you happy? Like fill in the blank. If I only had this, then I would be happy, fulfilled, meaningful. Maybe it's a relationship. Like if I could just have a girlfriend, then I, could, I would feel all right. Or if I could just get married and have a family, then I know when that happens after college, I'm going to be happy. And right now I can deal with it. Or a status, if I could just get into that fraternity or that sorority. If I could just get into that club. If those people would think that I'm cool or smart or funny or good looking or etc. Um, maybe it's your success. Like if I can get into PBK, I'm a senior. Get that Fulbright. Get that competitive internship. Get that job that's going to pay me all kinds of money. Then 
If, if there's anything like that that you can think of in your mind, your own imagination, if I could have this, then I would suggest to you that that is your lover. That's your other lover. I could just have this. If God would just give me this. See, the very thing that you're mad at God for not giving you might be your other lover. And, and what he's saying is, I love you too much. I'm going to put thorns in your way. I'm going to put a wall. I'm not going to let you have this thing that you think will fulfill you because I know what you really need is me. Because I love you too much to give you that. He also woos her back. He, does, he doesn't just prevent her from getting the thing that will hurt her. He woos her back. Verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came out of the land of Egypt. I love that picture. I'm going to take her into the wilderness like when we came out of Egypt. He's talking about... The, have you read the book of Exodus or seen the cartoon where uh, God, the, the, the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt and God sets them free through miracles. He parts the Red Sea. He sends plagues. He feeds them with water from a rock or quenches their thirst with water from a rock and sends manna from heaven, bread from heaven to feed them and sustain them. And it's really funny because here in this passage, he's talking about that like that was their honeymoon. Do you remember what it was like when I first came to know you? And you first really came to know and trust me. And remember, they were like grumbling and complaining. <laughs> they were like, we want to go back where they killed our babies and made us make bricks and build the pyramids because we're thirsty. And he would be like, water from a rock. And they'd be like, okay, we like you now. You know? And it's really funny that he views the God in this story. Like he's almost viewing that as like the heyday, which only shows like how much his people didn't quite deserve it. It's really funny, um, a lot of commentators, like quite a few of them, can't quite handle the extravagant grace of this passage. So they say, well, I mean, she was a whore later, but Hosea didn't marry, she wasn't a whore when she married him. Because, and then the argument is kind of, it's basically like, because God wouldn't do that. One, one thing I read even said, the picture here is of a good marriage gone bad, rather than, a, you know. But yeah, a, a really great marriage where everyone was complaining and wanting to get, have their babies killed again. <laughs> Which is the, the reference. But because we can't, we just, oh, God wouldn't do that. It's too much. It's outrageous love. It's hard to come up with an idea. It's hard to find examples in our life of a grace like this. Of a love like this. Um, when I was in college, my pastor, his name was Joe. And Joe's wife's name was, was Barb. And he, he loved to tell this story about when he um, decided to marry Barb. They were actually like middle school sweethearts. Like how adorable is that, right? And, um, and uh, there was a night in high school. And Joe played the guitar. Like he was very, very good. Um, his dad was involved with... Um, What's the guy's name? Oh, gosh, he passed away recently. He always did the, the countdown thing on New Year's. Dick, Dick, Clark. Dick Clark. His dad was friends with Dick Clark. So, like, Joe could have, like, probably had a career in music, but um, he hadn't been a Christian, and his wife, Barb, kind of, she wasn't his wife at the time, but kind of led him to, to understand Jesus through friendship and conversation. But there was a day where they were supposed to go out on a date, 
And um, the septic tank backed up at Joe's house. And so his basement uh, was flooded with sewage from his septic tank. And Joe's mom was like, hey, Joe, sorry. <laughs> you can call your girlfriend, cancel your date. Here's some buckets. Get to the basement. So he calls Barb. He's like, hey, I'm sorry. My basement's full of sewage. And I've got to sludge it out with buckets. And so he's down there and has disappointed her. And he's bucketing the sewage out. And he said he, he looked up and he saw, he heard the door creak. And he looked up and he saw galoshes and cutoff shorts, which were totally cool back then. Uh, galoshes and cutoffs coming down the stairs. It was Barb. She hadn't changed. He had told her what the reason was. And she walks towards him. <laughs> like, literally standing in his feces. Okay? <laughs> like, you got it? Like, you got what's happening here? And she said, he said, she, she looked at me and she said, give me a bucket. Because he was just like, what are you? Why? This is not good. Why are you here? And she said, give me a bucket. He said, What? Give me a bucket. He said he turned around like this and went, I'm going to marry this girl. (laughs) The bucket. Um, Why was he so drawn to her? Like he had had other girls like him because he played the guitar and he sang. Almost as good as this. And, uh, you know, like he had known people who would love him and care for him and be drawn to him when he was at his best. But like who wants to be around you when you're standing in your own excrement? That's love. Someone who sees you at your very worst. In the midst of everything that is awful. And that is the picture here where God says, she is all over the place. And I love her. I will allure her. I will speak tenderly to her. I will take her on a honeymoon again. Because she's mine. That's his love for us. We see not just like our unfaithfulness and his love, but our restoration. Um, it says this in chapter uh, 2, verse 16. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my Baal. That's the false god. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them, God's people, a covenant. On that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And I will say, I'm sorry, I will have mercy on the child. No mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say to me, you are my God. Um, Listen, it's not just a wedding in our relationship to God. It's a marriage. He is committed. He is all in even when we are not. I don't know anything like that. I don't know anything else outside of the Bible that that will tell me that. 
He is all in. He is saying, you are mine. It's the love of God that pursues no matter what. You cannot shock him. But it doesn't just pursue, it transforms. It brings about change. He talks about that covenant. I will make a covenant with the birds of the air and the beasts of the land and the creeping things that creep on the ground. Right? What is he talking about? He's echoing the very first chapter of the Bible. He's saying... The very beginning when creation was teeming and everything was right and God and man walked together in happiness and harmony. He's saying, God is saying to his people, I'm going to make it like that again. I'm going to set things right. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to break the bow and the sword. I'm going to make things right with us. I'm going to fix the brokenness. How did he do that? What in the world does that have to do with us? He does that through Christ. Ephesians 5, Paul talks about Christ. And the church, church meaning all of God's people, he's saying that Christ is the husband of the church. The church is his bride and he lays down his life for her, Paul says. He dies for her. And Hosea, the book as a whole, and the man Hosea pictures and foreshadows what's coming from God. Chapter 3, Hosea lives this out. God's telling him what's, how it's going to be. And then Hosea says, okay, that's how you're going to love us. That's how I'm going to love her. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, me being Hosea, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Raise your hand if you love cakes of raisins. Am I right? We've got our own thing, right? I I love raisins. Probably not as much as Gomer did. Um, (laughs) Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Verse 2. Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leth thick of barley. And I said to her, "This This sounds like wedding vows. Listen to this. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. That doesn't sound like wedding pass. Um, but you and no other, as long as we both shall live, right? You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He's reaffirming his marriage vow to her and saying, no more. I'm yours. And it's not just don't go running around on me. But he says, so am I to you. I am yours and you are mine. It's a picture of God's love for us. He buys her back. He redeems her. Christ buys us back, not with silver and a lethic of barley, whatever that is, but with his own blood. He lays down his life for his bride, for his sheep, for his people, for his children. Um, In college, Dawn and I had a friend. Her name was Ella. And Ella was getting married uh, a couple years after college, and she called us on the phone. She Call us. She called Dawn. She's like, I've got this awesome idea. She's from Tennessee, from Tri City area. That's how she Ooh. said it. That's right. And uh, she said, I want my groom so that our wedding would be a picture of the gospel. Instead of dad walking me down the aisle, I want him to come down the aisle and pick me up and carry me into the church. What do you think of that? 
And Dawn said, that is a terrible idea. Like, do, you, do you hate your father? Like, if he's a horrible man, then great. But if he's a pretty decent dad, you don't do that to your dad. And she, thankfully, we went to her wedding. She concluded. And her, she had a great dad. Some of us don't. Uh, but she, she had a great dad. And so she was like, yeah, that would be a horrible thing to do to your father on the most important day of his life in many ways. Um, so, but, but, but what she, but it was a terrible idea, but it was also a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful idea from someone who actually starting to grasp what the gospel really says about us and about the unfathomable love of God for us. And that's what I want RUF to be. Like, I want us to be a bunch of Ellas who go, he loves me and has done everything for me. If you're a skeptic, if you're here to question, I want you just to consider that maybe there's a God who thinks of you that way, who would give up everything for you no matter what you do. That's what we're about. Let me pray for us.